All right, it's good to see everyone this morning. A little bit of a slick morning out there, but it'll be gone in no time. And we're glad that you're here. If you're visiting today, I know we have some visitors here for the first time. We're glad that you're here. Trust you'll be blessed and uh, and be fed from uh, the Word this morning. Turn with me to John chapter 2. We continue our study in John's Gospel. <clears throat> Begin reading in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast... Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Isaac Newton's third law of physics states that every object that acts with another object creates an equal and opposite reaction. This is certainly true in physical life. You jump off of a raft in the water, you have a forward motion which creates an equal and opposite backward motion, and the raft goes away from you. But it's also true in the spiritual, in spiritual life as well. I mean, we say something, we do something, and other people react to it. What we see in John chapter 2 are three actions accomplished by the Lord that created a corresponding reaction in people. In Cana at the wedding, the reaction was one of belief on the part of the disciples as they witnessed the miracle of Jesus turning the water into wine. 
And scripture says they believed as a result of seeing what the Lord had done. In the temple, the reaction to Jesus driving out the merchants and the money changers was one of hostility and unbelief on the part of the Jews. These actions from the Lord created reactions in people. This is certainly still true today. All you have to do is is speak to someone about Christ or about the gospel, about sin, and you get all kinds of reactions from them. This is the point that introduces this next section that goes through chapter 3, verse 21. These verses are that we are looking at today, verses 23 to 25, are transitional verses. Thank you. Appreciate that. They're transitional verses that introduce the sex, this section on the new birth and the necessity of the new birth. They're important because they set the stage for the truth about what it means to be born again and about what it means to have true saving faith. Now Jesus and his disciples were in Jerusalem for the Passover and they stayed in Jerusalem the entire time, the entire week of the Passover. And while he was there, Jesus performed many miracles and signs among the people. And verse 23 says, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Now this is one of those times when Jesus did signs and wonders that we're not told about specifically. We don't know what they were. I can only guess that there would have been healings. Probably sick people made well. Deaf people made to hear. Maybe blind people given their sight. We don't know what these specific signs were. But they fit into John's statement about this gospel. And the statement of this gospel and the, and the overarching theme is that the things that Jesus did were so that men and women and boys and girls would believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. John 20, verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Chapter 21, verse 25, now there were other many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them written, I suppose the books of the world would not be able to contain them. So he did a lot of signs. Things that we, we'll never know about until we get to heaven and we're told of them. To those who were in Jerusalem for this Passover, it was a Passover week like never seen before. Here is a man who is working miracles doing signs that the Jews had not seen since the Old Testament days of Elijah and Elisha, 
These signs that Jesus did stirred the people up. And it says they believed on his name. They believed on his name. Does that statement mean that these people who are designated as many, does that mean that they were all converted and all had saving relationship with Christ as Lord? And I'll give you the answer. The answer is no. It does not mean that. Because of the weakening of false gospels preached during our days, especially over the last four decades, there have been many that are just like these people found in verses 23 to 25. Today, almost any positive response to Jesus is taken as a genuine sign of true Christianity. We live in a time when people are so deceived that many think they're Christians when they're really not. John MacArthur writes in his excellent book, The Gospel According to Jesus, he says, quote, Christians today are likely to accept anything other than utter rejection as authentic faith in Christ. The truth of the matter is is that when Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, he turned away more people, far more people than he won to himself. Yet, he refused to soften the message that he gave to the people and create a sense of false hope in people's minds and hearts. We have... Today, two generations of people who have been given so much error, so much falseness, so much cheap grace that there are literally thousands and thousands of people who think they're Christians when they're really not. The people in the first part of verse 23 were not true believers as revealed in the next line. When they, it says when they saw the signs that he did. When they saw the signs. I remember as a kid going to the, to the fair and we never went to the circus. Circus didn't come near us, but we would go to the, we'd go to the county fair. The Dixie Classic Fair came every year. I can remember going as a kid. And I always loved the sideshows. Because at the sideshows, you saw spectacular things. I mean, you could see a guy push a sword down his throat. Uh, You could see a guy blowing fire out of his mouth. I saw, I saw, uh, I saw a man with feet so big. That he'd never worn a pair of shoes in his entire life. He had elephantitis in his feet. 
spectacular things, things you just you you just stand and watch with well, amazement. And yet, after it's done, you just walk away. You might remember it, you might think of it, you might even tell it to a friend. Hey, look, let me tell you what I saw. But it makes no difference in your life. It doesn't change you from inside. This faith that these people had was not a saving faith that resulted in true repentance and belief. It was, as Luther called it, a milk faith. And milk, I'm assuming Luther meant, as compared with strong drink. It was a faith that required for its subject signs. They wanted to see something spectacular and they saw it in Jesus. It was like, but to them it was like an apparition that faded away at the scene of the sign and didn't move the person toward the doer of the sign, but rather centered on the sign itself. It was a faith which dazzled their mental Faculties, but never affected their hearts. They were always seeking a sign. Jesus rebuked them for their unbelief and warned them of judgment that was coming. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, if you will. Now in Matthew 12, Jesus is in Capernaum. He entered into the synagogue there. And as he was in the synagogue, he read the scripture. They brought a man who was demon-possessed to him. He cast the demon out. The Jews immediately said, This is the work of Beelzebub. This is the work of Satan. And they blasphemed against God. Jesus then rebukes them. Gives them again the sign of Jonah. They were seeking a sign. We talked about this last week. And so he said again, he said to them, Three days and three nights, the Son of Man must be in the heart of the earth, just like Jonah was in the fish's belly. Now follow with me, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now think about this for a second. He just cast the demon out of this man. And the man who could not speak... And could not see was healed right before their eyes. Would you, would you not think that's a pretty spectacular thing to see? We would see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Wow. That's pretty, that's pretty heavy confrontation right there. 
you're evil, and you're adulterous. But no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For his Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man must be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now get this, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? Because Nineveh repented. If you recall the story, they repented. And they, they showed their repentance and their humility before God. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This is very much the same problem that we have today in evangelicalism and in Christianity in general. Where people are seeking the spectacular. They want to see something that tingles them. I hear it all the time. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's miracles. Sometimes I get these things in the mail. Miracle healing services at such and such place. Prophet so and so. Sometimes it's just it's less than that. Sometimes it's music. People are drawn to music. Sometimes it's sometimes it's other necessities from a individual standpoint, like programs or meet my needs where I am. People seem to want to gravitate toward the spectacular. They, they're given promises. They want to hang on to promises that will make their lives easier and better and more comfortable. <clears throat> they equate these things with salvation. And they, many believe that if, because they're so blessed, they must be saved. And this, the two are not the same. What happens when you're not blessed? Or you don't feel blessed? These, these people in Jerusalem obviously thought a lot of Jesus because of the signs that he had done. And many of them would have said what was said in Matthew 21 at his triumphal entry. This is the prophet Jesus. A great prophet in Luke 7 has risen up among us. They said good things about him. So much so that the Pharisees thought they were going to lose their place and everyone was going to follow Jesus. These same people just a few days later were screaming for his death. Crucify him, crucify him. We'll not have this man to rule over us. Some of them also would have thought, possibly, this is the Messiah. And yet, not believing in a saving way. John chapter 6, when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, indeed, this is the prophet who was to come into the world. 
Now that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Sounds like they're believing the Scriptures, doesn't it? Verse 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take Him by force and make Him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountains. And He answered them and said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were full. You just want food for your belly. You don't really care about food for your soul. And that, my friends, is the summation of humanity in so many ways. Just give me what I want. Do what I like. Tickle my ears. Satisfy my senses. And we'll get along fine. But just don't tell me the truth about myself. Don't tell me that I am wicked. Don't tell me that I sin. John's whole purpose in writing this gospel was that they might believe and be saved. All the miracles that Jesus did were to point to Him alone as the Christ, not to stimulate fallen human senses. This is the purpose of verses 23 to 25. There is to bring about an unsettling effect in the reader. Yes, unsettling. People think way too much of themselves. Sometimes they need to be knocked down a notch or two so that they really begin to look at who they actually are. Causes them to examine themselves in the light of their understanding and belief in Christ. Now this proves that John, what John said about Jesus in verse 24 and 25. Where he, where he says that there that Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. When Jesus came to this earth, he limited himself in many ways. But he was, he was omniscient and he knew everything about everyone. He knew their hearts. He knew what was in every heart. He could see whether a person really believed or Whether they didn't. That means that not all belief is saving belief. There is such a thing as shallow, superficial belief that is not genuine, that has no commitment within it, and has no adherence to truth. This is a false Faith, a false belief. Many people believe. You just go ask people on the street, do you believe in God? They'll say yes. Many will say no, but some will say yes. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Well, what are they saying? Is that enough? Well, that's great. I'm glad that you're a Christian, a believer. 
Some people believe historically. That is, they believe that Jesus lived, that he was a great healer, a great doer of good, that he did the miraculous. He was a figure that lived, truly lived in history. And they believe that way. Some believe religiously from an intellectual standpoint. They not only believe that Jesus lived, they know a lot about Jesus. And they have this intellectual assent to him. And there are literally multiplied thousands of people that because they know some historical facts or have some intellectual assent about Jesus, think that based on that, that they're saved. This kind of belief or faith exists only as long as the object of that faith meets one's expectations. When it fails to meet the expectations, the faith goes away. It fades. This is not saving faith. Even the demons have this false kind of faith. James says it in chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. That word believe in that passage is a present active verb. It, It indicates that the demons are constantly believing that God exists in the heavens. But the demons don't have saving faith, do they? And when they think about Him, they... Shake and shudder and tremble. Those with with fake superficial faith will soon wither and fail to truly believe and will ultimately be cast into hell. According to Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, and chapter 7, verse 23, their hearts were never really changed. And they are destined ultimately to fall away and not have any faith. Matthew chapter 13, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. It looks real. I've seen this hundreds of times in my 40 plus years of ministry. Where people come along and it looks like they've been saved and and they're so on fire and and then the next thing you know they're gone. And you find out they've gone back into the world, back to the old life as though nothing had ever happened to them. That is not saving faith, folks. That's a fake, false belief that does nothing It rises up and it receives with joy, yet it has no root in itself, but endures only for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately it falls away. This happened to Jesus and it will happen to us. I was thinking when I was preparing this over the last 20 years of ministry here at Bethany. How many people have come into this church and sit for a while until they hear something that's just too hard for them to hear. And then they're gone. 
We'll see in a moment that that happened to the Lord as well. Perhaps the many of verse 23 who superficially believed were among those who turned away from Jesus and walked with him no more. Turn to John chapter 6, just a few pages over. Look at verses 60 to 66. Now Jesus had just given this uh, these words on his body and his blood being true food and true drink. And he's certainly not in uh, speaking of cannibalism. He is speaking in a metaphorical in metaphorical terms here. He's using uh, this as an analogy of true faith. And so he says. I'm the true bread that came down from heaven. Your fathers ate the bread in the wilderness, but they died. Whoever eats, feeds on me will live forever. Well, he's not talking about his literal body. He's talking about him, the person trusting him in faith and feeding upon him as their Lord. So Jesus said these things in the synagogue at Capernaum, verse 60. And when many of his disciples, now notice this. They're called disciples, but they're not true disciples, which is proven out here. Many of his disciples heard this. They said, oh, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? I don't don't want to hear this. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who it was that did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one, no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. You mean to tell me, Jesus, you're saying I can't come on my own? That's exactly what he was telling them. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and walked with him no longer. They fell away. They had fake, superficial faith. And they stayed with him only until their expectations were dashed. And then they were gone. Hard sayings. Paul clarifies the difference between fake Ungenuine faith and real faith in Romans chapter 10. Turn with me to Romans 10, if you would. Here, in this passage, Paul contrasts the righteousness that came by keeping the law with the righteousness that comes by faith alone. Beginning at verse 5, and I'm going to commentate through these verses as we go. Verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That is a legal righteousness where one does works to obtain favor. 
That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. If you're going to live by the law, or if you're going to say that your, that your works are good enough, then you have to keep all of them. Because if one's going to be saved by keeping the law, then they have to keep it perfectly. Leviticus 18.5 You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live. I'm the Lord. If you just keep my rules, my law, you'll live. Now what's the problem with that? Nobody can keep it. In fact, James says if you fail in one point, just one point of it, you've broken it all. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now, what does he mean by these statements? He means that God never required the impossible to obtain salvation. If it were impossible, maybe let me rephrase. It would be impossible if God had left it up to us to procure. Could we go up to heaven and bring Christ down to die for us? Could we have done that? That would have been an impossible task. Could we have gone into the abyss and brought Christ up from the dead so that His resurrection would finish His mission? Impossible task. We don't have to go to heaven to find Christ or enter into the world of the dead. We simply believe in our hearts that He did. And it's always been that way. This has always been God's prescribed message. It has always been faith in His Word from the heart. In fact, Paul quotes Deuteronomy here, chapter 30. The Lord God will make you abundantly prosperous in the work of your hand, the fruit of your womb, and in the in the fruit of your cattle, in the fruit of the ground. For the Lord will take again delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law. When you turn to the Lord your God, here, get this now, with all your heart and with all your soul. He didn't say, that you, when you go out and do all the works of the law perfectly. He said it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of your soul. That's true faith. For this is the commandment. I'm still in Deuteronomy. This is the commandment that I command you today. Is not too hard for you. God said that. This is not too hard for you. Just believe on me with your heart. It is not heaven 
that you should say who will ascend to heaven and bring it to us, that we may hear it or do it. Neither it is beyond the sea, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we would hear and do it. But the word is very near you. It's near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Paul had already gone this route of trying to keep the law. And he speaks of it in Philippians chapter 3. And he says, all these credentials, I was this, I was that. And it was all nothing. Now, notice verse 9 of Romans 10. Let me back up here and get verse 8 connected to it. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. What is he talking about? He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the gospel message. He is not talking about some mystical thing that God gives you where you can speak with your mouth and make things happen. That is not what he's talking about. He's talking about the gospel message, the message of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the Father. This is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your what? Heart. That God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is a matter of the heart. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses what the heart experiences for sure. That's why true Christians can never ultimately deny Christ. They can't do it. Because Christ lives within them. It is safe to say, based upon these scripture texts, it is safe to say that Jesus had no faith in the faith of these who saw his signs and miracles. We know that because of John's use of the words believed and entrusted. They believed, it says, the many believed when they saw the signs, but Jesus did not believe in them. He did not entrust himself to them. Same word, same, comes from the same word family. Comes from a Greek word, pistuo, which means to believe in, to uh, have faith in, to trust in, adhere to, commit to. In other words, they believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. He could see their hearts. He could see that there was not a genuine repentance of sin or conviction that he alone would grant forgiveness. He could see this. What they simply were interested in was purely external from the human viewpoint. They saw these things. They were interested in the things that had happened. They were not interested in following him. And he knew this about them. The fact is, Jesus knows everything about everyone. John said it. He needed no one to bear witness about man. For he knew himself 
what was in man. He knows that we're made of dust. He knows that we are his or that we are not his. There is nothing hidden from the Son of God. He knows our standing and He knows our state as it is before the Heavenly Father. Remember, nothing is hidden from His eyes. Hebrews 4.13 And no creature is hidden from His sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Everything is laid wide open. Nothing is secret. This is borne out in many passages throughout the scriptures. Jesus knows fully the hearts of all people. It's stated in many places. John 1 verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now how can you look at someone and just tell there's no deceit in them? You couldn't, but Jesus could. Matthew 9 verse 4, but Jesus knowing their thoughts said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Luke 5 verse 22, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered, why do you question in your hearts? Wow. Can you imagine someone being able to look at your, look at your innermost thoughts and heart and, and know what's there? Jesus does. Acts Acts 1 verse 24, they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these you have chosen. 1 Corinthians 4 5, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Revelation chapter chapter 2 verse 23 And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. This passage sets the scene for the next person that we see coming on the scene by a man by the name of Nicodemus. Who was in in total disbelief of the words that Jesus said. These verses prove Jesus' deity. Only God can see and know the hearts of people. Therefore, He is worthy of all of our worship because He can see our hearts this very morning as we sit here in this place He knows the innermost thoughts, the deepest secrets that are there. His deity is displayed in three ways. As God in the flesh, in this passage, chapter 2, so far. As God in the flesh, He single-handedly cleansed the temple and rebuked the irreverence of His Father's house. With great messianic zeal, he was consumed for the glory of God, his Father. As God in the flesh, he predicted his own resurrection. And with an unmistakable sign that the Jews should have recognized, except for their unbelief. 
the sign of Jonah. And as God in the flesh, he looked into the hearts of those who were claiming to believe, but who had not truly, really repented of their sins. And he knew what was going on. The cleansing of the temple is a picture of God's hatred of sin and of Christ's ability to cleanse it. He does so by conquering sin and rising from the dead and providing new spiritual life for those who truly believe. To them and to them only, he commits himself to be their Savior and their God and they to be his children. What great news this is for us who love Christ, who have believed in Him truly for salvation, who have repented of our sins and claim Him as our only God and Savior. It's great news. But it is a serious, terrifying word of judgment to come. For those who refuse God's grace in the person of His Son. They will endure the fires of judgment forever because of their unbelief. Walk with Him. Believe in Him. Stay with Him. Abide in Him. And let His words abide in you. And you have His promise that the Father in heaven will love us and Christ will love us and He will remain with us forever. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this Lord's Day and for the passage that we've spoken of this morning. Truly, we live in a a day of great deception. Many of the deceptions are so subtle, they're clothed with religious garb. And people think that that they're okay before you. They think they're saved. They think they're believers. They think they're Christians when they're really not. Oh God, open the eyes of the lost to see, truly see Christ and to see their sin. Grant repentance to them that they might come to know You truly in faith, in faith alone in Christ. For if we have Him, we need nothing else. We don't need the spectacular. We don't need promises of of a better life here. In Him we have all that we need. And I pray, Father, that You would remind us of that as we go about our, our way and seek to serve You and follow You that Christ is all and in all, and in Him we live and move and have our being. And He, He 
alone is our righteousness and our great reward. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, just an